You're listening to Discovering Multifamily, where we discuss all educational topics in commercial real estate with an emphasis on multifamily apartment investing via syndication. And now your hosts, former NFL fullback Brian Leonard and Anthony Scandariato. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Discovery Multifamily Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Scandariato with Red Knight Properties. And today we have a special guest here with us, Spencer Gray, who's the founder of uh, Gray Capital. And because we've been around, he's got extensive commercial real estate experience since 2006. So he's been through different cycles and he has amassed a portfolio of real estate assets of over 9,000 multifamily units and dabbles in some other real estate asset classes as well. So definitely want to hear his story on how he was able to uh, start and grow and scale his portfolio and then get into some of the current events that we're seeing today happen in the marketplace and where he thinks the trajectory of um, work, you know, multifamily housing is um, moving forward for the next five, 10 years plus. So really happy to have him on the show and excited to to hear from him. So thanks for coming on, Spencer. Hey, Anthony, I really appreciate you having me on. I've been looking forward to this and uh, yeah, looking forward to having a good discussion. Sure thing. So you start out just buying real estate out of high school pretty much or what was that yeah. story? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, uh, essentially it was actually just before I graduated high school, um, I had a great opportunity. Um, one summer, a friend of mine whose father, he was an attorney, he had been flipping houses and he wanted to kind of teach his son how to do it. Um, kind of told his son he needed a partner. Um, which ends up making sense because you need partners on real estate. The, the reason he needed a partner at that time is because I think my, my friend was going off the summer camp and needed somebody to do all the work. And so I ended up getting stuck with doing all of the work. And so kind of that was in kind of, you know, 2006, 2007 timeframe, um, you know, the real estate market had been very hot. Um, but as we were kind of going to you know, sell that property, it was a low end um, house flip and, you know, credit started tightening up and the folks that we were hoping would, uh, be able to buy that property because back in those days, you you know liquidity was it, was it was so easy to get a mortgage. You didn't really have to have an income. You could make up your income, and so you know as long as you basically showed up, uh, you could buy a house. And that was kind of who we were targeting because that's what my friend's dad was doing. And you know we ended up learning a pretty valuable lesson as we saw um, the mortgage market kind of tighten up. Um, you know, kind of pre just before the recession that happened in you know two thousand and eight. Um, so that kind of taught me a lesson. That was, you know, my first real estate um, deal. I went on to continue flipping, you know, more after um, I, I finished up um, college. I went to Indiana University. Um, I was a music major at first. Um, in general, I've always been a driven to be an entrepreneur. Some of my parents started a business um, and grow a business. And I kind of want to do the same. Wanted to do that in the music industry. Uh, but, you know, following my passion, not really following my head too much because I, you know, thinking back, I don't know how I was going to be able to you know, build a profitable business in the music industry. Um, that led me to you know, continuing to flip houses, but I wasn't making any money on my music and eventually started another business. Um, unrelated music, unrelated to real estate. We were um, brokering hops for the craft beer industry that was growing kind of in that 2012, 2013 timeframe. Um, built a pretty large business doing that. Um, we're, we're exporting to breweries, all 50 states, exporting internationally. Um, and then in, in about 2015, sold that business. So it wasn't really that scalable, but we had an opportunity to sell it. And at that time, all I was doing was reading all about different real estate investing strategies. And I kept 
learning about and coming back to multifamily, buy and hold multifamily. And like, this makes sense because I didn't want to flip houses anymore. I was tired of the burning and churning, kind of waiting for the music to stop. I wanted, you know, that be able to create cash flow, long-term wealth generation. And multifamily really seemed like it was the ticket. And so I just started networking everybody that I could ever, who would, you know, take 10 minutes to sit down with me. Um, you know, my wife was involved at the time. She had helped me start the other business, um, the hops business. And eventually I found a great partner who was kind of looking for um, kind of a strategic capital partner. And I didn't really know what I was doing in multifamily. And so I wanted to leverage his experience. And, you know, we formed, um, uh, you know, a partnership in in where we started co-sponsoring and co-GPing um, his projects. He, he was already syndicating um, multifamily deals, but he was trying to grow. It needed some, you know, kind of just some more jet fuel to kind of keep his operation running. And uh, we were kind of that that jet fuel that kind of moved him to the next level, allowed us to gain experience, kind of learn from the inside, um, build our portfolio. And, and eventually after doing a little over a dozen co-sponsorships um, with that group, um, quite a few limited partner investments as well, we started sponsoring um, our own multifamily acquisitions, um, in, primarily in the Midwest. In the Midwest. Okay, great. So you have a very specific niche. Um, can you talk about that niche a little bit? Um, as you know, we were discussing before, you see a flock to the Sun Belt, yep. um, you know, to lower uh, tax rates and, and um, more business friendly, at least at least right now in the current climate. Um, so what what is exciting about the Midwest and how did you how did you choose um, what states are you in? I, I understand you're from Indianapolis, so love to hear more about yeah. that as well. And so, I mean, that really was it. I mean, it wasn't, we didn't start by saying, let's, let's look at all 50 states and let's pick the one market we're going to target. It, it really started um, because again, you know, I had come out of flipping houses, being passionate about, you know, kind of fixing up my community, you know, I saw neighborhoods that were growing and I wanted to be a part of that, you know, that culture in that, that growth story. So, you know, I was very passionate that kind of led to, you know, or I want to do the same thing with apartments in Indianapolis. Um, you know, Indianapolis, it, well, Indiana in general is, is also, it's a very business friendly state, um, low tax state, lo relatively low, one of the lowest property tax states um, in the Midwest. Um, but why, so we didn't really realize that Indiana and Indianapolis were really unique, um, just because that's what we were doing. We were in the thick of it. It wasn't until I really learned more about, well, I was really, you know, just studying the market in general and studying other markets, you know, learning about the Sun Belt, learning about all these migration patterns um, and some advantages of other markets that I really started looking at Indianapolis through a, a much more critical lens. And, you know, what we found is that, um, you know, we've, we've, got, we've got strong population growth, but it's not at the... The, the incredible clip that some of the Sunbelt states are. Um, but, you know, what we found is, is we have a very steady growth, linear growth, but what we weren't seeing is the big crashes, you know, so we weren't seeing the booms, but, you know, when a recession happened, we didn't see the entire market kind of fall out from underneath itself. Like you saw, you know, maybe in a Las Vegas or you saw in Phoenix back in 2008, 2009, um, we have a very diversified economy, but all of what, that's all you know, good and great, but really what creates kind of the sweet spot and why we continue to invest in the Midwest, because we look all over the U.S. now throughout the Sun Belt. But what keeps us coming back is the fact that the solid fundamentals, but it's not overcrowded. We don't see have capital, you know, rushing in by, you know, the trillions, you know, maybe by the hundreds of millions, you know, maybe a billion dollars. But we're not seeing, you know, just floods and floods of capital 
driving prices to a point where you're not going to be getting any cash flow. And part of our objective is, you know, we are really cash flow focused investors. And so, you know, Indianapolis specifically and a handful of other Midwestern markets can produce this really nice balance of solid cash flow um, with a decent amount of appreciation. Now, that being said, not every Midwestern um, market is, you know, created equally. And I think that's the big difference between, you know, the Midwest and, you know, the Southeast or the Southwest where you can go into the Southeast and essentially throw like a dart at the board and you're going to pick a market that's got like awesome population growth or you some, you know, some kind of growth story um, just because of migration patterns or your most, you know, secondary tertiary markets, at least in the, the Southeast. But the Midwest, you know, uh, there are, you know, the Clevelands um, and like the St. Louis markets, which, you know, are not not horrible, but, you know, they don't have, you know, they have, you know, Cleveland, you know, has negative population growth. And there's a lot of Midwestern markets that have either very stagnant or even negative population growth. And so you have to be careful of picking the right markets, but also kind of even more granular, granular than that is really the right locations, right submarkets within those markets that are experiencing that growth. And so being from Indianapolis, having that knowledge, having that experience, you know, we ask ourselves, well, why, why should we go to, you know, an Atlanta or a, you know, a Dallas or a Charlotte, which are excellent markets where, but we don't know those markets as well. We're not going to get the cash flow. And, um, you know, we, we don't know what we don't know when we have a market where we can produce consistent um, returns, especially in terms of cash flow. So, right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's always good to invest where you know. So, exactly. after those co sponsored deals, were those opportunities all in Indianapolis or in the Midwest as well, or were those in different states? Primarily in the Midwest, a lot of them, um, a lot of them were in Indianapolis, um, and then pretty much all of the growing markets in the state of Indiana, so Bloomington, Fort Wayne, um, Evansville, uh, Lafayette and West Lafayette, um, South Bend, and kind of the Granger, South Bend, uh, Mishawaka, MSA. Um, we're invested in all of those markets, as well as um, Ohio, Kentucky, um, a little bit of Tennessee, which is really kind of the South, but it's sort of close for us. Um, kind of the really the only market in the Midwest we don't look at is Illinois because of high property tax, high property tax, and, you know, just not very business friendly at all. So. Yeah, no, no, totally under, understood. So you'll be able to learn from, you know, your partner that you had at the time yep. in order to do, you know, become the lead sponsor on your, on your own deals. So are, how many units are you at now? And where do things sell for, at least in general, we're recording this at the end of, you know, middle of 2021 yeah. on a price per unit basis. Uh, Cause I've seen some things that are 20,000 a unit, 30,000 a unit. And, you know, I, I talked to someone, he's like, yeah, I got, you know, 50,000 units. And I'm like, well, how much do you pay for all that? He's like, yeah, like 20,000 a unit. I'm like, whoa, Ooh, that's like nothing that's nice compared basis. to on the East coast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so are you asking what we've paid for exist past properties or what's what the, what the market's looking like right now? Well, what you have paid for, what the market's yeah. looking like, and then kind of what the trajectory is of Where maybe see just going. in general, multifamily, and then, you know, Midwest specifically. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, a good deal in the Midwest right now for a, um, let's call it a C-class property, maybe B minus is still going to be kind of in that 50 to 60,000 adore range. I haven't seen any kind of 20 to 30 adore um, for really quite, quite some time. Even a couple of years ago, kind of like 40 adore was be really at the low end. 
and it's, it's going to be you know pretty heavy um, lift. We did we we bought a property last year for right at fifty thousand a door. So I mean, like you still can find some of those deals. Um, you know, but you know, and it's, there's usually a little bit of meat on the, on the bone in terms of, you know, what you have to do. Um, but then, you know, if we kind of go up the kind of the quality, uh, spectrum, different classes, if you're looking at more of kind of like a B class property, it's going to be, you know, more than that really 75 to call it a hundred and ten thousand per door range, um, depending on, you know, how much opportunity there is, you know, if it's completely stabilized, um, versus if, you know, you have to really, you should go in and renovate each unit and it's really more of a value add opportunity. Um, and then kind of even going up further from there, um, you know, for more of kind of your class A, um, A minus core plus projects that, you know, let's say, um, early mid two thousands, um, that those are going to be kind of in that $140,000 per unit range today. Now, last year they may have been 110 or 120 or 130. Um, I mean, there was a property that sold, um, you know, end of 2020 for, I think it was like 130, that same property today would probably sell for 140 a door just, you know, several months later. And so the market has moved so fast in the past, you know, six, six to 12 months. It's really incredible. Um, you know, especially in the really, not just the value add space, but also kind of that core plus space as well as a lot of folks have moved, um, kind of up into that B plus a class range as the cap rates for, um, kind of B and C properties have compressed just closer to those kind of the A class properties. And people are going in just for more of a, a yield play without doing um, that much work, adding that much value, but just still kind of harnessing the momentum of the markets themselves. Um, and but then, you know, really kind of at the top of the market, new construction, we're seeing, you know, closer to 200,000 a door, um, you know, kind of depending on what it is in the location itself. Um, and, and so that's certainly elevated from a couple of years ago. Right. And you mentioned your cash flow focus. So on, you know, a yield basis, what, you know, and also it depends upon how many units you're buying at a time. Yeah. So I'm not sure what your average deal size is, but obviously the yield, you know, your cash on cash return or your cap, you know, cap rate, um, mm. not or the two different things, but um, what are you generally seeing in the Midwest, what Midwest in Indianapolis for 50 unit value add um, or actually core plus class, maybe B minus C plus uh, workforce yeah. housing type of deal. What do you, do yeah, you know, you know, and, you know, it comes down to, you know, the little bit of the business plan, you know, sometimes you're doing a big value add cash flow is going to be lower in the first year. And it's like our typical value add business plan that we're seeing these days, um, you know, we have about five to 6% cash on cash year one that once the business plan has mostly been executed, um, we've, you know, raised rents on some of those renovations, you know, we're seeing cash on cash kind of in that eight to 10% range, you know, that, that okay. that's more or less typical. Um, you know, for a more stabilized project, we're seeing cash on cash and kind of like the seven to 8% range to start and hopefully, you know, trending to double digits over time. You know, a lot of our deals are averaging cash on cash, kind of that nine to 11% range, kind of depending on kind of the profile of, of the project itself. So, you know, still, you know, pretty decent, you know, cash on cash interest rates being so low have really helped us on our newer acquisitions. Um, and then, um, you know, kind of inflation and rent inflation has really helped us on all of our existing assets to kind of boost up some cash on cash. Past right. Months. No, right. No, that makes sense. So what do you think, 
you know, is going to happen once the rates rise in a market like yours where you specialize in in the Midwest? Is that really going to change the real estate values relative to um, what you, you know, have as collateral right now, what you took out on the property, given the low rates and what maybe the property might be worth uh, yeah. a year or two from now? You know, it's, How do you look it, at that? it's interesting. I mean, we see it's a double-edged sword. So, you know, interest rates go up, um, but that means we've got some serious inflation that's going on also. And so interest rates are going to go up. Maybe cap rates are um, going to go up slightly, or maybe they just stabilize because there's still so much investment demand that, you know, they're kind of keeping cap rates where they are. And that's what happened in you know 2018. We saw interest rates rise significantly, but cap rates really kind of just flatlined. They didn't go up. Um, you know, they, if anything, they, they went down a little bit. And then when rates came down, cap rates continued to go down um, further. You know, if I if I knew where interest if, where if I knew where interest rates were going to be, obviously I'd be you know multi billionaire because I could just you know make a couple bets on, on the bond market. But I I my I don't think interest rates. I can't see with the amount of debt that the U.S. federal government has that they are going to allow um, interest rates to rise too much, just because they're not going to be able to service service the debt. And if you know if we look at where the ten year Treasury has hovered, you know, kind of peaked at kind of one you know, one hundred and seventy five basis points. Now it's back in, you know, 130, 140 um, basis point range. Um, you know, that's kind of signaling that, you know, maybe we're, you know, we're seeing growth and in inflation, but it's not kind of going to blow everything out of the market. And the Fed is going to have to step in and significantly, you know, tighten. You know, they, they have been talking, Jerome Powell has been talking about they're going to be at least thinking about raising rates. But I think it's going to be very moderately to kind of just pump the brakes a little bit, which frankly would be pretty healthy because we, we, the type of asset appreciation and asset inflation that we've seen again, just the past 12 months, it's been incredible for owners, but it's not sustainable um, because, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing rent growth, significant rent growth in a lot of markets. I mean, in Indianapolis, I think we're at at least five or 6% over the whole metro. We have submarkets that are um, 12%, some submarkets that are 16% year over year rent growth, like crazy numbers. You have to like do a double take, but we have to see wage growth, which there's pressure on wages because all these jobs are hiring people back. No one wants to come back to work because there's been an unemployment benefits. Those are expiring, you know, really kind of in the next couple of weeks, you know, at the end of July, some states are a little bit after that. We, that we should see pressure in wages because if McDonald's McDonald's is paying fifteen dollars an hour, you know you're going to see other, those other jobs that are slightly higher skill level kind of pushing up as well. But are we going to see sixteen percent wage growth, twenty percent wage growth? It kind of has to. You know, rents can only rise so much if wages are kind of lagging behind. So you know, wages are kind of the anchor and that floor, or they they put a ceiling, not a floor, but a ceiling on rent growth. So I, I think that's what we're going to have. We're going to have to. Um, kind of watch for is that we don't get too far over our skis in terms of asset inflation and where cap rates go, you know, just so low because we don't see that, that wage growth to go along with it. So I, th I think that's, to me, that's the, that's the biggest question is, you know, or how much, I know we're going to see wage growth, but, but how much, and if we don't see enough wage growth, that that'll be concerning for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Especially if you're trying to raise rents and, you know, every single apartment owner are, is looking at when they have a tenant come in and they're screening them to rent at the property. I mean, yeah. I like to see three times the rent yeah. in, in their salary, their gross salary, right? So if that's not keeping up, then we have other issues. You'll have collection issues. You'll have tenants that shouldn't be renting from you, renting from you, and 
a whole horse, host of other issues. So um, totally, totally agree with that. And you were around in, you know, 2008, 2009, although it wasn't, you know, 100% larger multifamily deals. Yeah. Um, it sounds, you know, this recession is a lot different than um, last time. That was more of a, a credit credit it, crunch. It, exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, they couldn't be they couldn't be, you know, for further apart and, and more different. And, you know, because I mean, last time it was a financial crisis, you know, led, led by housing. And this is like a, a medical crisis and, the, and then, you know, kind of like a government crisis. Um, and, but then the government has intervened to such a different extent than they did back in 2008. And then real estate values, you know, where they went, they were went, got cut in half in 2008. They're, they're, they've gone up by like a third, you know, in this recession, which kind of surprised everybody and you were probably doing the same thing last year everyone was kind of batting battening down the hatches being like okay you know what, what's our collection loss going to look like and are we going to see you know loss of you know only 75 percent collections 80 percent collections 60 percent kind of stress testing what our properties could do bring reserves in you know you know some folks were suspending distributions and um as you said we then what ended up happening is we had we're seeing record occupancy and we've seen record rent growth and which in a recession you usually you would think you would see a year of rent um declines but we had the exact opposite so it's and um liquidity is the other big thing i mean banks stopped lending 2008 2009 banks have continued to lend standards have tightened and the standards you know prior to the recession were pretty strong whereas 2008 the standards were well there, there were no standards we were talking about you could get a mortgage with you know essentially no income um, so yeah, we're, it's in a, in a different world. I, I you know, I'm concerned, um, may, not necessarily specifically, but you know, we've spent trillions of dollars and, you know, we've kind of changed the economy and I don't think we know what all of these consequences are going to be down the road. Um, I'm optimistic kind of by default. I think, you know, we're going to kind of keep moving forward and, you know, we're, uh, you know, an entrepreneurial, you know, nation, we kind of make the best out of things. Um, so I, I have, I have high hopes, but certainly there can be some compound effects that we're not seeing and some black swans sitting out there um, because um, you know, we, we really have altered the way that the economy works and the expectations for the future. I mean, I think that most people now believe that during the next recession, there's going to be, you know, a bailout for just about everybody because that's what they learned in 2008 when they just bailed out some of the big banks, everyone got incredibly upset, rightfully so, because he just bailed out a handful of folks this time around, everybody's getting a check bailouts for all. You know, that's a default. I mean, arguably say that it worked out pretty well. It, it saved us from a lot of pain, but you know, there's nothing free in, in life. And so, you know, somebody has got to pay at some point. And now are we seeing that with um, elevated levels of inflation where the purchasing power is just being destroyed and the, and the power of the dollar is being destroyed, you know, you know, Perhaps, I mean, that's what kind of econo uh, economics teaches us, um, but it didn't really happen in the last decade either when we thought that we were going to see rampant inflation because of the quantitative easing and money printing. Um, so, you know, I, I am a, a, a student of economics in terms of I, I'm fascinated by it, but I'm, I'm not an economist. I, I just, I'm just absolutely fascinated by kind of watching um, the, the soft science of economics, because nobody knows, listen to the federal reserve, Trump Powell, they don't know either, which is frightening because they are controlling the economy and setting the price of money. Yeah, no, hundred percent agree. Uh, Spencer, how can, uh, my listeners find out more about you and, and learn about your company and, 
uh, want to talk to you. Yeah. Um, you know, the best way is you pop on our website, greatcapitalllc.com. Um, you know, we've got a newsletter you can sign up for, learn more about the company. Um, I'm, on, I'm on LinkedIn, you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Happy to get in touch with you. I'm also on Bigger Pockets. Um, um, so, but if you just, even if you just Google Gray Capital, um, we should pop up right at the top. Excellent. And if you liked what you heard and or saw today, if you can give us a rating and review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. It would help Spencer and my message get out to a greater audience and check out uh, Spencer's platform. You, you have a um, another website in the making too, right? You were telling? Yeah, so it, it, it's kind of kind of this crazy side project. You know, we were tracking, um, we were trying to track all these new research reports that come out, primarily because we have, a, we have a newsletter that goes out every week and we try to compile every multifamily or real estate research report that gets released in articles. We were like, well, instead of doing this once a week, let's build a website that aggregates everything. And so we um, put together, it's called greatreport.com, and we call it a, a multifamily intelligence aggregator. We're pulling in um, dozens of RSS feeds. We've got virtual assistants that are kind of just sitting on websites that don't have RSS feeds, pulling in research reports, um, covering the entire multifamily industry, real estate, the economy. Um, we have kind of you know, all the best podcasts, YouTube videos. Um, so if you're a multifamily investor, um, it, it's a, you know, we've built it as a great free resource to kind of just you know, bookmark and stay up to date. So it's greatreport.com. Awesome. Greatreport.com. So we'll have that as well in the show notes. And appreciate that and appreciate you for coming on, Spencer. Uh, hope to see you again soon. Hey, absolutely, Anthony. I really appreciate you having me on. This is great. Thank you.